For those of you who don't know me, I'm Bryony. Um, I've been part of this church for a long time now, um, and yeah, I'm part of the church family, and it's a real privilege uh, to be with you this morning. So I want to ask you a question this morning. When was the last time you looked in the mirror? Um, <laughs> we're getting building work done. This is really dusty. Apologies. Um, when was the last time you looked in the mirror? And I don't know about um, what your... Don't worry, I'm not going to stand and do my whole sermon like this. For the people who are on the front row, Elliot, who are now thinking, I'm going to have to look at my own face for the entire... Oh, it seems like you're cool with that. Okay. Um, <laughs> I don't know about what your, what your relationship is with a mirror, whether you love it or whether you hate it. Um, do you, we're, like I said, we're in building chaos at the moment, so we don't have that many mirrors around our house. And I also realised that for the previous 15 years that we've been living in a different house, the mirrors were all set to my husband's height in the bathroom. And those of you who know my husband, he is considerably taller than me. So we, I am enjoying slightly lower mirrors in our new house. And um, one of the things that I um, love about mirrors is that as each of our children have got to that key age of around about eight or nine months, and the moment that they realize that it's them in the mirror. Like, I love that moment where they realize it's not just a friend that's come around to play, I mean, gutting, but um, <laughs> it's actually them. And I love that about mirrors. I'm going to put this over here, because then I won't annoy the camera people who, actually, I'm not going to put it there. There we go. I'll leave that there. Elliot, can you still see yourself? Oh, disappointing. Um, <laughs> What we're going to be looking at today, and why I want to leave that there um, as a visual representation, is that we're going to look at what it means to look at ourselves in the mirror. Is Luke freaking out about the mirror? It's shining in people's eyes. You can just put it on the floor. It's fine. <laughs> I've caused absolute chaos. Is that all right? Put it up flat. It's fine. <laughs> what we're talking about, which I really now have made the point on, is that we are, what it is to look at ourselves in the mirror, what it is to live an examined life. But first of all, I want to tell you a story. So there is a city um, whose ruins are in Turkey. And this city was the capital of an, the, ancient city, the ancient kingdom of Lydia. And it was a wealthy and important city. You can see there um, the ruins of the temple of Artemis. It was a very pagan city. And it was at the foot of the Bosdag Mountains and looked out at what was the biggest trading route in that area. It held this really strategic position and it was a really well-fortified city. And its occupants lived in comfort and peace because they believed these walls and the position that their city held meant that they were impenetrable to foreign armies. They felt really safe. However, in 547 BC, they realized that that wasn't true. Cyrus the Great, the leader of the Persians, held this city under siege for 14 days. And actually, those inside the city during those 14 days weren't too worried because they trusted in those walls. They believed that their city was strong and the reputation that it had that no one could get in was true and was good. 
They'd also sent messages to their allies, um, the Spartans, the Egyptians, the Babylonians. These were all um, nations that they had relationship with. So they'd sent out messages saying, can you come and help us to fight the Persians? But none of them arrived on time. Because unbeknown to the people inside the city, there was a Persian soldier watching the walls. And he watched a soldier inside the wall drop his helmet. It fell over the wall and landed on the ground. Then he watched that same soldier scale down the wall, pick up his helmet, scale back up the wall, and return to the city. And the Persian soldier on the outside realized that he had discovered the one small neglected part of these walls which were open to attack. And so he climbed up and got into the city. And then one by one, hundreds of these Persian soldiers attacked, got into the city and attacked from the inside. That city would never recover after that defeat. And even though the Greeks eventually took over the city and developed it, it would never have the same importance, the same wealth, the same reputation that it once had. That city was called Sardis. And it is one of the churches that Jesus writes to in Revelation. And so we're going to read about that city now, about that church in the city of Sardis now. So we're reading from chapter 3 of Revelation Verses 1 to 6. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge them, that name, before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we are in the middle of a sermon series looking at the book of Revelation. And Luke kicked us off a few weeks ago with an overview of the whole book. But briefly, this was a book written by John, which contains a series of visions that he had in his old age. The book was written to a church that was under intense persecution. And with that in mind, Revelation focuses on giving the church an eternal perspective. Not only would there one day be an end to persecution and suffering, but that even in the persecution and suffering, we, the followers of Jesus, they, the churches that he was writing to, are part of a much bigger and much better story. And Revelation was really bringing that vision to the church to help them to keep persevering. And the section that we've been reading are Jesus' own words spoken through John specifically to seven key churches. And as we've said kind of pretty much every week, they're not written to us because they're clearly addressed to other people. This is addressed to the church in Sardis. However, they are written for us. There are deep truths and challenges here for the church today. And ultimately, 
actually, even though Revelation can feel pretty weird at times and a bit scary and a bit confusing, Revelation is about hope. That the trouble the church faced, which were many, they were not the end of the story. The verb nikawa, which means to conquer, occurs 17 times in this book. This is a book which should leave us in no doubt that Jesus will have the final word, that he will conquer. And so today we're reading this letter to the church of Sardis. And so like all the other churches that Jesus has been addressing and we've been looking at in the last few weeks, this church is struggling under persecution and yet it's an active church. It has this reputation for doing good, for being alive. But let's be honest, as we read that, Jesus really doesn't mince his words, does he? His evaluation of this church is pretty stark. He is not happy. And he is saying, actually, that their reputation is not the truth. It's hiding the truth. He lays down um, an accusation which actually should really remind us of Jesus speaking to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, where he says, You hypocrites, you are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. Jesus can see that their front stage, what they present to the world, is different from their backstage. And he accuses them of being spiritually dead. And Jesus goes on really to give them a choice. Go with culture, keep going, clinging on to who they used to be, or repent. And Jesus is reminding them that they are a city that has gone down this route before. Because stories and histories matter. I wonder in your family, how would you finish the sentence, do you remember that time when? Is the stories that your family kind of retell over and over, anecdotes or funny stories? As a child, there was a couple of times where I ended up falling in the sea on beach trips. And now I'm a 38-year-old woman and I can't go to the beach with my family without them warning me about the perils of falling into the sea. Because this story has been retold and retold and retold every time we've gone to the flipping beach. (laughs) And so that story is strong in our family. And I wonder if you have those things as well. Because we know the power of story, that the more we retell those family stories, the more they get embedded into our history. And especially um, in cultures where you can't or couldn't in the past have photographs to jog memories, This retelling of story was really important. And for the the people in Sardis, the great siege of Sardis, which I told you at the beginning, would have been a story that was retold throughout the generations. It would have been retold as a warning and as a reminder of what can happen to a city. And so when Jesus talks here about their reputation and and how they need to wake up and to be strengthened, and how defeat can come when you're not looking, they would have been reminded of their history, of the confidence that can come before a fall. And actually, out of all of the churches that Jesus speaks to in this bit of Revelation, he's the most directive with this church. He tells them to wake up, to repent, to be alert, to be strengthened, to remember, to hold fast. These are all actions. They all require movement. 
And it's clear that Jesus thinks that this false life, this um, looking one way to have a reputation, this disconnect between the backstage and the front stage of life is deadly, and they need to act urgently. The soldier is climbing up the walls of their lives, and the downfall is imminent unless they strengthen themselves. And the way that he instructs them to strengthen themselves is to remember the truth of the gospel, to cling to the hope they have, to return to their first love, to come back to God rather than concerning themselves with reputation. Jesus is holding a mirror up to the church of Sardis and saying, what do you see? What is the truth? And I think the thing that I find challenging here is how easy it is to go from fooling others to fooling ourselves. You see, this isn't about a church that is deliberately deceiving others. Jesus isn't calling them liars here because his first instruction actually is to wake up. The issue is that they have been asleep. They have walked so far down this road of disconnect that they are believing their own publicity. They have been fooled by their own reputation. How easy is it for us to forget to look in the mirror and to begin to fall for our own story? I was speaking to a friend a few months back who um, goes to a different church, and they were just talking about how they were just turning up to church. They were going through the motions. They were active and involved, but inside they just felt dead. Their front stage was looking great, and no one would know. But the truth was quite the opposite. And haven't we all been there, let's face it? Haven't we prayed words when we weren't sure what we believed anymore? Haven't we raised our hands in worship when we were fuming on the inside with God or others? Haven't we said, you know, I'm doing great to somebody, literally maybe even this morning, because it was much easier than trying to be vulnerable and actually share how we were doing. Haven't all of us at some point felt spiritually dead? And Jesus asks us gently to wake up to the truth, to see ourselves in the mirror. And for a church like ours, this is particularly challenging because we have a history, some bad, some good. We have stories of God's faithfulness in this place. And we also have a reputation. But how easily we could rest on that reputation, how easily we could avoid examining ourselves and the condition of our church. Because on the outside, we have this great building, don't we? We have amazing worship teams. We have really good coffee, so I'm told I don't drink the stuff, but apparently I've been told for like 20 years that there's good coffee here. I don't know if you agree with that. We have moderately good toilets. Um, (laughs) But we need to be careful that we don't become whitewashed tombs. That as a church, we regularly examine ourselves in the mirror and we ask, where is our own reputation fooling us? A psalm that I find myself coming back to time and time again is Psalm 139, verse 23. It says, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is what Jesus is directing the church of Sardis and the church now back to. 
this vulnerable coming back to God in repentance, of acknowledging that we don't know ourselves half as well as we should. We're all in need of God to search us, of God to know us, of God to point out the things in us that are offensive, or in other words, you know, the things that just don't align with how he created us to be. And while the challenge is for the church and our church, we're a body and the church is the sum of its parts. So if we individually heed Jesus' command to wake up, you know, to smell the coffee, so to speak, we collectively will become a healthier place to be. So I guess the challenge really for myself and hopefully for everybody here today is to ask the question, are we regularly looking in the mirror? Has our life become unexamined? Are we open to the searching of the Holy Spirit? Are we willing to pray that Psalm 139 prayer boldly? There's a famous spiritual discipline that I'm sure many of you um, know or have tried called the examine prayer, which takes um, us through a review of our day. And I would really recommend that if you want to kind of start building in some sort of practice of asking these questions every day. But I'd also recommend finding people who can ask those questions of us. I'm part of a group we um me and Hannah Graham um, started gathering um, lots of the women who just had babies over this last year. And we've been meeting every Thursday morning um, to open the Bible together and pray. Um, and it's absolute beautiful chaos because there are a lot of children and they're all not tiny babies anymore. Um, but this week um, we were talking about our relationship with God. And as I um, shared, and that place is um, just a really beautiful, honest environment that somehow God has created amongst us but we were talking about our relationship with God and I shared and I maybe articulated for the first time in a while how I was actually doing and the last year of being in leadership uh, a part of the team here at the church has been really hard let's not make a joke about that and I have found that God has sustained me and met me powerfully I have been clinging to him but I honestly haven't been enjoying him. I haven't been enjoying my relationship with God. And being able to say that to a group of people who I know will hold that, who will hold me, not in judgment, but will give me space to look in the mirror is extremely powerful. Because once I'd shared that, actually, we were able to talk about what I hope to change and how I hope to develop and grow again in my relationship with Jesus. But I needed to be brought to the mirror first. I needed the tricky questions that Hannah Graham always pulls out of the bag every Thursday morning. I needed that that day. I needed to be brought to the mirror. And I wonder where that lands with you this morning. How are you doing with examining your life? Where, like me, do you need to wake up? So that all feels quite challenging, doesn't it? <laughs> but there is hope. Jesus doesn't leave the church in Sardis and us without hope. Let me return briefly to the passage. Yet, we love it when Jesus says yet, yet, you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They walk with me dressed in white for they are worthy the one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. So there's two things I want to draw out of this section before I bring us um, into a time of response. 
Firstly, Jesus is commending here um, people who have not soiled their clothes. And it's not totally clear what Jesus is referring to, but we can make a pretty educated conclusion that Jesus is talking about people who have not sinned in the way that he has just outlined in the previous paragraph. These are people who are following him and his ways. He says these people will walk with him dressed in white. And white clothes were worn for celebrations. Later in Revelation 7, we'll read this. After that, I looked, and there before me were a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. He is saying that those who choose this way of life will be part of this eternal celebration. You know, in Revelation and in the Gospels, when the transfiguration happens, the Bible talks about Jesus glowing white. So this is also pointing that those who follow Jesus actually join him in being made pure and holy, which is, of course, what white signified. And Jesus also promises that they will not be blotted out. In cities like Sardis, there would have been a book with all the names of the citizens written in it. And when somebody was um, accused and, and sentenced to death for a crime, their name would have been erased, literally blotted out of that book so that their name didn't tarnish the reputation of the city anymore. It was like they were gone from the book. What Jesus says here is that those who heed these instructions, those who follow his word, those who let themselves be examined by God's spirit will never, ever be blotted out. They will never be erased. He will never turn from them. That's good news, isn't it? It's good news. You can smile. It's okay. And hidden in the middle of that passage are these words, they will walk with me. They will walk with me. And I think these words are particularly important because they point us right back to the start of the story. In Genesis 3, God is walking through the garden and he is looking for Adam and Eve because he wants to walk with them and they hide because of their shame. Here at the end of Revelation, we see that shame reversed as God's people are invited to walk with him again. They are, we are, restored. Because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, we get to walk with God again. The shame of the garden is gone, and we get to be known by him. That means, actually, that this exercise of looking in the mirror This practice of examining our life shouldn't lead to shame. Because as we repent of this stuff, as we acknowledge that our backstage is rarely the same and consistent with our front stage, as we turn back to God, we can be confident that like the father welcoming the prodigal son home, he welcomes us. He stands with us. In fact, he runs towards us us. And he stands with us both individually and as a church as we look soberly in the mirror 
And he says, he puts his arm around us. He doesn't walk away from us and leave us looking at our own reflection. He stands with us. And he says, there is hope. I am redeeming all things. And that includes you. I'm just going to invite us now to just have a moment of silence because I've said a lot of stuff, some heavy. We're just going to have a moment to let God search us, actually. Because I could say, let's all do that tomorrow morning, and then half of you will not remember a thing I've said, will you, <laughs> tomorrow morning. But let's, let's do that now, shall we? Should we just let God search us? So you might just want to close your eyes. Maybe in your mind's eye, you want to imagine a mirror. And maybe it is a, a deep looking for the first time for a long time of saying, actually, God, search me and know me. Psalm 139, it says, search me, God. Know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. As we come into worship now, I think I've been praying in the week and I think that God really spoke to me yesterday that there are some people today who um, that picture of a, a soldier climbing up the wall is the one that has resonated this morning. It's just resonated in your heart because, it, because you know that there are areas of your life where the enemy is able to climb up the wall. The enemy is able to get in. And whether that is um, because of sin and stuff that's going on that you are part of or whether the circumstances that you're in but you feel that there is there is a little chink in the wall and the enemy is getting in and that could be through like habits that are built up and addictions it could be to do with anger or gossip or like there's loads of stuff that can just create a little chink in the wall and that the enemy is 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 climbing he's getting in and you're just really aware of that and I think today, God would want you to know that he is the one who strengthens the walls. We don't have to rebuild the walls ourselves. We don't have to um, sort it out. Like, he is the one who strengthens. He is the one who wants to walk with us. And so you might just want to come forward and just sit, really, and just say, God, I want you to strengthen my wall today. Can be, that's the simple prayer that we could all pray. I mean, I will be praying that today, but that God would strengthen our walls Give us a reality check in the mirror, but strengthen our walls. So can I ask you to stand? I'm going to pray, and these guys are going to lead us in worship. God, I thank you for the tricky bits of the Bible. I thank you that there are bits of the Bible that are hard <laughs> to read, hard to digest, that they need us to turn them over and over so that we understand them. And Lord, we don't want to be scared of challenge in this place. We don't want to be scared of, of, the, of reading your words and then bringing a challenge to us. Because we know that they come with a whole heap of your grace and your kindness and your desire to walk with us. And I pray that we would be a people who can stand in front of the mirror, vulnerable and honest, that we can see the places where we, not, we are not quite as we should be, that we're not quite there. But we can stand there knowing that you are next to us. You're next to us saying, I have you. I am redeeming you. I pray that we could be honest about those places where we have let the enemy 
find a gap in our wall. And God, today we want to say yes to walking with you. Yes to your invitation to walk pure and holy with you. So God, would you help us to do stuff, do the business now as we worship to be open to you, open to your spirit. Lord, we believe the Holy Spirit is in this place and your spirit is resting on each of us and that you are searching our hearts, that you are making yourself known to us. And Lord, I pray that every person who walks out of this building would know that you walk with them, that you invite us to walk with you and you would release a great joy in each of our hearts this morning. Amen.